Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to today's episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. This is a podcast aimed at helping civil engineers grow by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. You can visit us at engineeringcareercoach.com and get a free three-part series that will cover topics including how to use LinkedIn effectively, how to communicate clearly, and how to become a powerful leader as an engineer. Again, those videos are custom to your experience level and available for free at engineeringcareercoach.com. So this week, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Normally, we do a civil engineering project segment, and then we have the main portion of the show where we do our interview. But today, because of the guests that I have with me, we're going to combine both of those into one section. We're going to make the civil engineering project and the conversation one segment. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity for us to unpack this project that we're going to cover, and that project being the City Arch River and Jefferson National Expansion Memorial Project. So we're going to unpack that with the lead project manager for that on the civil engineering side. I think it's going to be great. But before I do that and really get in and do the introductions to our guests today, I just want to remind you that you know, Anthony and I both love civil engineering projects, and we'd love to feature yours on a future episode. So you can go to civilengineeringpodcast.com forward slash projects, where you can submit your project, and we might just feature it on a future show. And maybe even you can come on and tell us about it in your own words. We're always interested to hear about unique, historical, or challenging civil engineering projects that can provide knowledge to all of our listeners. So please go out there again. The link is civilengineeringpodcast.com forward slash projects. Drop us a line. Let us know what project you're working on. We'd love to feature it. So I have with me as my guest today, Kathy Schneider, professional engineer, PE, with the National Park Service in St. Louis, Missouri. Kathy's the City Arch River and Jefferson National Expansion Memorial Project Manager. She's a registered professional engineer with over 30 years of professional experience, 24 of those in service to the federal government. For the last four years, Kathy has served as the National Park Service's Park-Centered Project Manager for the $200 million City Arch River 2015 Redevelopment Project at the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, otherwise known as the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Now, this major construction effort is a complicated partnership project. We're going to get into that unpack some of the challenges that she's had and she's facing even today as we record this with the different stakeholders. And that project is all focused on renovating and updating facilities and visitor services. She joined the National Park Service in 2003 as the Midwest region's chief of construction program management. And in this capacity, she has been responsible for managing and directing all aspects of the 13 states, the Midwest regions, major design and construction programs, as well as supervising staff assigned to the program. And before that, for 13 years, she spent time with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, where she worked as a project manager in the military construction program, something that I know very well, and uh, had a lot of subsequent civil works program works, and one of the positions she held as the chief of water control uh, section during the 1993 flood in the St. Louis region. And we may even jump into a little bit about that. So, Kathy holds a bachelor's degree in civil engineering from South Dakota State University, a master's of public administration from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And as I mentioned, she's a professional engineer. Kathy, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Chris. I'm glad to be here this morning and excited to talk about the project here in St. Louis. Yeah, well, so why don't we start off and, and just start off first by helping the listeners understand a little bit more about what the City Arch Jefferson Memorial Expansion Project is. Tell us a little bit about the scope. Hopefully most of the listeners are uh, familiar with the Gateway Arch here in St. Louis. It's a 630-foot tall monument uh, clad in stainless steel. Uh, construction was completed on that in 1965, so we're quickly approaching our 50th birthday celebration. The monument sits on 90 acres adjacent to the Mississippi River in downtown St. Louis. Also includes uh, the old courthouse, which is the, the building I office in and I'm sitting in right now. And, and that structure was completed back from 1864 to 1894 time range. Has, the park is a National Park Service site uh, owned and operated by the federal government. In approaching its 50th birthday, uh, actually the project, the impetus for the project 50 years ago was basically redevelopment in downtown St. Louis. It was local leaders got together and wanted to spark redevelopment, wanted to spark economic activity in downtown St. Louis. So that's basically, they got the federal government involved and, and out of it, after a number of years, came the Gateway Arch. 50 years later, city leaders again started looking at downtown St. Louis, how to reinvigorate, revitalize, how to connect the city to the arch, to the riverfront, and came up with with the concept for revitalizing the arch grounds. The National Park Service uh, implemented a general management planning process, which is what we knew before we we proceed with uh, major changes to one of our national parks. That was completed in a record time of 18 months back in 2009. After that, the the newly formed City Arch River Foundation implemented international design competition to look for design teams to do this revitalization project. September 2010, the competition winner was announced, and and the team has been led by Michael Van Valkenburg, a landscape architect out of Brooklyn, New York. Over the subsequent years as the project has developed, uh, what has come up to is it's total about a $380 million project. About $200 million of those are actual construction improvements to the 90-acre arch grounds and facilities. The surrounding projects also include a renovation on the riverfront, which is adjacent to the arch property, and that's being led by uh, City Arch River. Missouri Department of Transportation has also implemented $50 plus million worth of transportation improvements around the arch grounds. And that includes probably the centerpiece is a block-long bridge over the recess lanes of I-70, which separate the arch grounds from downtown St. Louis. Our projects now, the, the National Park Service-led projects, will, will come back in and, and re-landscape both that bridge and much of the arch grounds. It will also expand the Underground Visitor Center at the Arch by an additional 45,000 square feet, uh, construct a new at-grade entrance to that structure facing downtown, and also do some improvements here in the old courthouse. There were a number of design goals, but they included safety and they included accessibility. So a lot of our improvements we're doing are geared towards not only ADA and ABAS, but actually a universal design. Well, that's great, Kathy. Thanks for sharing sharing the overview of the scope on the, on this project. You know what, what I found was interesting is as you were talking and describing the project was I, I guess I never really understood the initial impetus for the Gateway Arch itself, and I, I found it interesting that one of the major uh, points that led the city 
to uh, initiate that project was kind of the same one for for this the city arch expansion, which was really a, a revitalization of the downtown. And I guess as I'm looking at that, I'm kind of curious if you had any insight on involvement from civil engineers, even at the earliest point, trying to determine you know how best to revitalize the you know the city center. You know, I'm not sure about uh, the civil engineers. Of course, the famous folks involved with the development of the arch uh, were Saarinen, who was the finished American architect that designed the structure itself. And he worked real closely with Dan Kiley, a uh, landscape architect, to develop the site. So here is a civil engineer. I'm a little chagrined. I can't tell you who the civil engineers were involved, but I'm sure that on the Dan Kiley team especially, there were a number of civil engineers, along with the Saarinen team, for designing the arch. Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure they definitely were, especially on the uh, the structural aspects of the uh, of the arch itself. I, I think even though even though we may not be able to say, hey, here's specifically some some people or, or firms that were involved in that, there's no doubt that civil engineers were involved. You know, right from from day one. So it's it's again, it's pretty impressive that you know for you know up on 50 years now here, the civil engineers' effect on this particular city, St. Louis, and the fact that it's become at least in discussions I've had as I've traveled around the world. People may not necessarily know what St. Louis is, but as soon as you mention to them what the arch is, they know exactly what you're talking about. So definitely an icon. So as you were talking, Kathy, you mentioned and you touched on some of the stakeholders that were involved or that are involved in this project. You're on the federal side, but I'd like to I'd like to kind of hear maybe your perspective and some of the challenges that you've seen and as a project manager, how you've handled working with these diverse stakeholders, because you've got you've got municipal from the city, you've got state, federal, and, and private entities. Yeah, we've got uh, a large number of stakeholders um, that are very interested involved. Of course, our, our lead partner on this effort, at least, is the City Arch River Foundation that was created back in, in 2009. So they're a fairly new foundation, but their goal was to conduct the international design competition and then implement the results of that and also do the private fundraising side. Uh, their fundraising goal is about $250 million, and they're, they're within about $20 million of that right now, I believe. Other partners are uh, Great Rivers Greenway that I mentioned. Um, they're a local uh, bike trail, local sales tax funded entity. Local sales tax was implemented specifically to fund this project, and GRG is charged with managing those funds. So They've also bought, brought about $85 million of, of bonded sales tax revenue to the table for the project. So those are the two partners we work with on a daily basis, even hourly basis, making decisions as we move this thing forward. You know, in addition to that, we had the Missouri Department of Transportation that I mentioned that are doing a number of transportation improvements, which are integral to the project. They're constructing the land bridge. We're coming back and landscaping it. And in addition, like you said, we've got the city uh, very involved. We've, of course, um, being a National Historic Landmark, we work closely with the, the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Officer. Another partner that's been involved is the Bi-State Development Agency, which is a regional transportation agency. But they have been a partner with the ARCH uh, since its inception. When the ARCH was completed in 1965, there was no federal money to construct the tram system inside of it. So by state development agencies stepped forward and bonded and constructed the tram system, and they have been operating that to this date. And revenue generated by that tram system then are reinvested in the park 
in the terms of, of different improvements. We've got downtown business owners that we're impacting negatively right now and hopefully positively in the future. We've got the adjacent neighborhoods we're working with. We worked with the Corps of Engineers. We worked with the uh, U.S. Coast Guard. And I'm probably forgetting a half a dozen. <laughs> That's a, that is amazing. So, you know, with, with all the stakeholders, what is, you know, what are some of the tactics that you use, some of the skills that you have to rely on to try to keep them all, you know, keep everything in, organized and determine who do you need to speak with when and, you know, how, how does all that work? How, do you, how are you able to keep it all, uh, all aligned? I think that one of the first the smart things that, that we did is is created a, a core team group at the very beginning of the project. And and that group met periodically and, and basically sorted out responsibilities, who needed to be involved, who didn't need to be involved. You know, so for example, the Corps of Engineers was involved early on as we needed different permits from them. But now they've, you know, once we've gotten through that process, they've kind of dropped off. It's meetings and phone calls and emails and distribution lists, and it's it's never-ending. You can't communicate too much, it seems like. And we're, we're still learning on that. Who, who needs to be involved? And, and we've learned the more is better when you're making decisions. Bring anybody to the table that may have an interest in it, and it will solve and save you problems down the road. Yeah, no doubt. The uh, it's interesting that you bring up the point of you know there's never never enough communications because it's something that uh, Anthony and I touch on routinely on the on the project management side and and really even just in our in our individual careers is you know is continuously communicating and honing those skills. When you're communicating, have you found it to be more effective in in getting decisions arrived at? by using one type of communications over another. So I, I would presume that maybe you have the ability maybe to be able to use more face-to-face meetings. Are those more effective than email? They are. Emails are, are great for documenting things, you know, getting preliminary information out, getting information in front of people to look at, but found that it can also create a lot of misunderstandings too. And sometimes when you're relying totally on, on email, it can backfire on you. So while we do use it extensively, we also do a lot of face-to-face meetings, which fortunately are, they're not face-to-face because many of our stakeholders, including the designers and, and others, are remote. So we rely on WebEx meetings, go-to meetings, conference calls. I don't know that there's a meeting I've sat in in the last year, hardly, that hasn't had somebody on a speakerphone. Those are challenging. It's hard, especially for the folks that are remote and aren't in the room, but it's, it's a necessity, and we've learned how to, how to deal with it. People have gotten used to it. Communication skills are probably the number one requirement you need to work in this environment. So, you know, everybody, you mentioned that everybody's, everybody's kind of learned to, you know, to, to work in this type of an environment. What are some of the, I guess, lessons learned? I mean, no doubt you've, you've had some successes and some challenges in this virtual environment, but uh, what, what are some of the successes and challenges you've had? You know, I mean, just as fundamental as making sure everybody's got the basic equipment that they need. Um, some of the silly things that we deal with are the fact that the government, federal government, um, there's some softwares we're not allowed to load onto our systems, and they may be packages that our consultants work in. For example, this call today is on Skype, and that isn't one of the supported software systems for the federal government. So I'm actually doing this call from my personal cell phone. 
you know, we'd either get waivers or our consultants would find alternate means to communicate with us. But, you know, it seems kind of silly, but that's been one of the basic requirements. The other piece is probably documentation. Once you've, you've conducted your meeting, had your call, you need to document those discussions because it's amazing how often those will come back and it'll be like, well, well, what was decided or how did we get there? So documentation. And then um, the challenges with time zones. We have, uh, for example, our exhibit designer is Haley Sharp Design out of, out of Britain. So they're on a totally different time schedule than we are. And then in the States, we've got our architect and landscape architect are in the Eastern time zone. We're in the Central time zone. And the National Park Service's main project management, uh, construction management team is in Denver in the mountain time zone. Oh, brilliant. So yeah. trying to get meetings and, and people have just had to stay flexible. I'll do conference calls from home in the evening because that'll work with somebody else's schedule. Wow. So on, on the documentation side, are there, are there specific, uh, do, do you use templates um, to try to, to try to, you know, ease that and make it a little bit easier to, to accomplish? Or is there some other, some other way that you make that simpler for you? Um, templates have just kind of evolved out of it. And there's the typical people designed with the, the note taping taking. Um, now that we're in construction, uh, most of that is being done by our construction management team and they have a template. During design, it was probably looser and that probably didn't serve us so well. We would have been better to put a template in place at the very beginning. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's the key item there to take away for, for uh, listeners is, is uh, as you get into, uh, even on the planning end of a project, of making sure that before you step into that, that you have a good methodology in place to be able to do documentation all the way throughout. So we're talking not only meeting, meeting minutes and um, agendas and, and whatnot, but even just uh, observations on, on the design, the planning process, et cetera, all the way through. And, and you know, Kathy, as you mentioned, you know, within the construction side, usually when you have, especially your construction managers out there, you're able to rely on them. They do a, usually a very good job typically a very good job of being able to document a lot, but uh, on that front end, it can be sometimes of a challenge. So let's let's move in uh, a little bit more maybe to some of your experiences. You know, we talked maybe about some of the overall challenges, but from a civil engineering standpoint, what are some of the challenges that this project has presented to the, to the design agents and on the design side, and now that you've actually entered into construction, some of the, some of the challenges that you've come across in construction? Well, uh, probably one of the main ones is, is, as I mentioned, the park is located uh, in downtown St. Louis, on top of the site of old St. Louis. So there was 40 acres or so of, of old brick warehouses, buildings demolished prior to building the arch, and they were buried. So we have uh, a lot of rubble under the site. Utilities, especially fiber optics, were put in over the years without good as-built records. So we have uh, several fiber optics line and lost things like security cameras because they aren't where we thought they were. Or even if we potholed, they may have been four foot deep where we potholed and then where the contractor dug, they were within six inches of the ground. So not having a clean site, working on, on a site with so much history has been really a challenge. And of course, along with that goes the archaeology. So we've had uh, the National Park Service and archaeologists on site the entire construction time, observing whenever we are doing any kind of excavation past the know-and-fill line. We've also got a local firm on standby in case we do find something so they can swoop in and help us with the recovery of those objects 
and get the contractor back working as soon as we can. You know, and you add to that the the fact that the arch and its complex are still open to visitors. So while we've got almost every square foot of the arch grounds under construction, including most of the, the visitor center facility museum itself, we still have to provide a safe and somewhat enjoyable experience for visitors. And that means keeping all of our life health safety systems online. Uh, and that's been a real challenge. And probably to top it off is, is St. Louis just recorded their wettest June on record, um, which means the Mississippi, not only does it impact the construction site, but the Mississippi River has been in flood stage for, for weeks now. <laughs> and not only is the river, GRG's riverfront project underwater, a portion of our grounds projects are underwater right now. And until we dry out here and the river recedes, uh, we know there's a schedule impact. We just don't know how much yet. And mm-hmm. with schedule impacts come cost impacts. Definitely, having having lived in the region for a while, I, I I'm, I'm familiar with that. We had a couple, you know, a couple of the years your past where the water has come up down on the Mississippi, and uh, it's surprising that I just left uh, left the St. Louis area here about a, a little over a month ago. So I, I missed all the rains of this past month, but um, mm-hmm. no, got a, a major challenge, and um, you know, trying to maintain access for the public has got to be a significant challenge because I think most, if anybody has been involved in any type of project work where you have to maintain access, obviously the easier way would be just to completely close it and, you know, go to town. But uh, unfortunately, that that's not a case in the case for a, uh, for a national monument. So it's also interesting you brought up the archaeological piece. We had uh, a chance to interview and have a discussion with some members from the Illinois Department of Transportation about the Stan Museal Bridge and mm-hmm. same issue that they had on, on the Illinois side of the river when they were out there doing the work as well was the archaeological components. So very interesting. We already mentioned the fact that the arch is coming up on its 50th anniversary. Some of the homework that I did in preparing for the for our discussion today, you know, I noticed that there was a, a kind of a what I would classify as being a pretty tight target deadline, or at least that's the perception that I've got, that you're trying to have the project completed and ready for the Arch's 50th birthday. So is that the case? And if it is, how challenging has it been to, to work to that tight target deadline? Well, it's proved to be impossible, actually, Chris. So we, when this was started back in 2009 and 2010 with the design competition, that was, in fact, the target. For a number of reasons, the design process took longer than anticipated. It was a very challenging goal to begin with, and we didn't get there. Right now, we just awarded the last uh, major piece, which is the 45,000 square foot museum expansion piece. That was just awarded last month. We're looking at completion of that'll be the last piece completed, and that will be sometime summer of 2017. The grounds projects that are underway right now, the landscaping, uh, the new trees, those will all be completed hopefully next summer of 2016. The only piece that we're going to have completed this year is probably uh, one small park called Luthery Lysmith Square, which is located between the old courthouse and the arch. Riverfront was scheduled to be completed by 2015, but now with the riverfront flooding down there, um, that deadline is in jeopardy also. But we've tried to keep it in perspective. You know, the, the anniversary, the birthday, was impetus for the project. It created excitement. It got donors and the public excited. It got everybody on board, and it got people moving, um, which was something hard to do to steer a ship this big. The National Park Service's position has been all along, 
we need to do it right. Five years from now or even a year from now or whenever, if people are going to remember that it wasn't completed on the anniversary, you know, I don't, I don't think they are, you know, five or 10 years from now. But we want it done right. We want a quality project. We want a sustainable project. And that's been our focus and goal. So while we're sacrificing a little bit in schedule, we're going to do it right. Well, I think it's, you know, that kind of comes into the, into the project, you know, the project triangle with the scope, schedule, and cost. So it's uh, interesting that you mentioned that uh, everyone, it sounds like maybe the, the, the key stakeholders are very much more focused on making sure that it's done right versus done on time, if you will. That's the case. Yes. City Arch River uh, really pushed schedule hard. I mean, they had made commitments to stakeholders and donors, and but I think they've done an effective job communicating to their stakeholders why we are where we are. And, and I think there's pretty much buy-in. People understand. Well, that's, that's good to hear. So, Kathy, you've had a number of, number of years, nearly 30 years in uh, civil engineering uh, profession and project management. I'd like to ask, you know, is, if, have you faced any new challenges on this project, something that maybe was unique to you that you hadn't seen before, either for yourself or your project team? Yeah, I think it's it's probably what we've talked about before. It's the, the number of stakeholders and the sheer amount of communication that needs to be done with that. Other unique features of this project that we really hadn't talked about was the the security being a national international icon, uh, the security requirements and some of those things that surround that aspect of the project have made construction extremely challenging. I guess maybe I'll ask this from a, from a career development standpoint, but obviously as, as you've progressed through your career to get to the point where you are right now, because this is such a important project and so many stakeholders, are there any skills or other Actions that a civil engineer who's maybe in the first decade or even the first few years of their career might really want to focus on to be able to put themselves in a good position to be able to fill your shoes at some point in the future? You know, I think it's diversity. The amount of civil engineering skills I used on a day-to-day basis are, are much less in this job than a number of other skills. I've gotten involved in areas in this project, uh, whether it's compliance Uh, Historical National Historic Preservation Section 106 to NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, and real estate uh, right-of-way type issues. I've drafted uh, legal binding agreements with partners and and work closely with, with solicitors to do that. There are archaeology. There are just a number of aspects that I have not gotten in my training or experienced in my past life. And so anytime I'd say a young civil engineer has a chance to branch out and get involved in planning or get involved in some of these more non-traditional type roles, uh, the better, because you really end up being the shepherd and you have different experts you're working with that can actually do the task, but you've pretty much got to understand where you're going with them and what the requirements are uh, to lead that effort. That's great. Great advice, Kathy. I appreciate you sharing that with you. The, the note to really take away you know, that I, that I heard here is just something that I've also seen through my own career was that uh, whenever there's an opportunity presented to be involved with something that, that maybe falls outside of what you would classify as being, you know, the box in which you work, your, you know, your civil engineering work, your cubicle, that, uh, that you have that opportunity to, to take it because you never know what opportunity that's going to open up for you in your career 
five years down the road, 10 years down the road to be able to have that experience, to be able to say, hey, I, I've done that before. I know exactly what's involved can be useful, not only for career opportunities, but can also be useful in communications that you have with uh, with different diverse stakeholders. So that's appreciative to hear about that. One other question that I, I want to ask you is, is with all the stakeholders and the fact that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, communications, you can never have enough communications. My guess is that you probably can have too much communications well, and that would be email. Emails are, are unmanageable. You know, they're coming at you 24 seven almost. And I'm guilty to say I have quite a large number in my inbox. I basically manage them by, by triage at this point. You try to open them, you read them. If they need action, you put them in a folder where you, you get to them. You file them, you put them in folders, but I, I fall behind on that, I have to admit. And it's, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do try to respond when they're open. I try to only handle emails once if I can, or if I can't handle them at that time, I star them and put them in an action folder. That's useful advice for anyone um, who's who's facing it. I've I've been in those positions before as well, and you're right. It's it's pretty much all you can do is you know is open it and, and try to answer the you know try to make the best guess that you can on the most important one that's sitting in front of you. So very appreciative of uh, of that challenge and the fact that you're taking time out to be on this uh, on this call with us and sharing your advice. So that's wonderful. So you know, before we move into the uh, the final segment of today's show, I, I wanted to ask. And this is a this is kind of a out of the blue question, perhaps for you. But but I want to ask is is there any book, one book that you might recommend to engineers that you have found very helpful in your professional and personal development to get you to the position where you are today? You know, I guess I really can't uh, think of one book. You know, I've I've read a number of books. I probably rely more on uh, mentors different people I've worked with and for, um, trying to emulate their management style, trying to learn from from the way they approach problem solving. So I'm probably more of a visual, verbal learner than I am through reading books. Okay, that's that's useful. And I, especially on the on the aspect of working, you know, really looking for and working with mentors, because uh, you're right, there can be a lot of very, very good information that can come out of that. All right, it's, uh, it's time to close out today's episode as we always do with our civil engineering career elevator advice. And Kathy has stuck with us because she's going to share one item with all of you, uh, which is really some actionable advice. And so, Kathy, what's one thing that you would have done differently in your civil engineering career if you could go back? Or what is one of the best decisions that you made in your career and why? Let me kind of take both of those. Um, the first one, Chris, I'm not, I'm not sure that this is the answer you're looking for. But at this point in my life and this point in my career, I took my career pretty pretty serious my entire life. And as I look back now, I guess I wish I would have paused a little more and taken a little more time with my family when they were young. I think that's something that that all professionals struggle with, and especially women. But I am where I am, and, and I have had a good career and, and enjoyed a lot of diversity. Probably the thing that I've done the best is been open, open to any challenge. I've, you know, if you read my resume, I've done everything from water control to military project management. I worked in the private sector for a number of years. I even took a stint out uh, mid-career to to do some development work with a, a local uh, private school system, which was really outside of the civil engineering field. But every one of those skill sets I picked up along the way 
I mean, they were almost totally different careers, but I learned things and, and all of those things have come with me to this job and probably made me as successful I am in the job I'm performing right now. So I would just say, look for new opportunities. Uh, don't be scared to take them. You know, don't, don't play it safe all the time because there's, there's a lot to learn out there and you're going to land on your feet. That's awesome advice. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Kathy, thank you so much for joining, joining me today on the, uh, on the show. You're welcome, Chris. I've enjoyed it. Well, please remember, everyone, that you can find the show notes for today's episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com and look for episode number 11. That's civilengineeringpodcast.com, episode number 11. And until next week, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.